Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen. I need to do a huge shout out to those of you supporting the podcast over on Patreon. I literally can't do this without your help, so thank you so much. If you've been thinking about supporting, now is definitely the time. We've got some amazing things planned for the future that can't be done without your help. You can help by contributing as little as $1 a month. $5 a month gets you some bonus episodes and some other perks. I'm trying to make more and more perks available every day. Support today by visiting patreon.com slash fstop and listen. Welcome to episode 62 with Erwin Buskey. Man, I've been a big fan of Erwin's for a long time, and uh, I think you guys will really enjoy his work if you check it out. And uh, his passion really comes through on the podcast. Um, I learned a lot from Erwin in this one. He's uh, very wise and generous with his words. Um, We talked a lot about Leave No Trace and uh, finding your photographic vision, so I think you guys will enjoy it. Hope to talk to you all soon. Thanks for tuning in. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Erwin Buskey, for coming on to F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen. It's so awesome to have you here. Happy to be here. Big fan of your podcast. I I listen to it regularly. Awesome, man. I've been... uh, I've been a big fan of your photography for several years now. I, I think I started following you when I moved to Portland, Oregon in 2015, I think it was. And, uh-huh. yeah. and, uh, I don't live there anymore, but, uh, yeah, I, I really, I really like the stuff you're doing. I think, um, it's been cool to see your progression over the years and see how your, your art has kind of evolved. Thank you. Yeah. I guess we can start off just, um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, like who you are, where you're from, where you live, what do you do for a living, how you got in, how you got into landscape photography. Okay. Well, I, I have been involved in landscape photography for over 30 years. Uh, I started out like a lot of people, you know, just very much um, – in tune with the great outdoors, nature, backpacking, and wanted to share those experiences with other people uh, to experience the a tremendous sense of awe and wonder it, it, with nature. And how do I share that? Well, uh, buy a camera and start taking pictures. And, and I, I, I started doing that about three decades ago. Um, you know, right out of college and um, uh, went on multiple hikes and backpacks, always taking the camera with me. Originally, well, it was an OM-10 Olympus camera, film camera. It evolved into uh, a medium format, possible system. For a short period of time, I was actually using large format also. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, it was um, pretty heavy and and, and cumbersome, but uh, it really taught me a lot about seeing nature in unique ways and slowing down. Uh, digital eventually came along. Uh, I w- was an earlier adopter. Um, I, I did, didn't approach the digital era dragging my feet. I immediately. Decided that there was advantages. Uh, film to me was always somewhat of a compromise. Uh, 
Now, even though uh, it, the discipline of working with film put a lot of emphasis on getting it right in the camera and finding natural light to express oneself artistically, I always thought it would be better if I could do some editing to get it the way I really want it. So I, I immediately saw that advantage with digital and embraced that revolution uh, starting about probably 12 years ago or so. And, uh, okay. Yeah. And uh, I, I uh, for the most part, photography was a good counterbalance to my work life. Uh, I worked at Boeing, which is a very def defense, aerospace-oriented company, uh, engineering-oriented, uh, not a lot of room for artistic expression. I mean, there's <laughs> some. I mean, you could, there is some room, but, but, but not like I really wanted it. Uh, so uh, these sabbaticals, weekend trips into the mountains – 10-mile, uh, 15-mile backpacks, 4,000 feet elevation gain were kind of my, like my weekly agenda <laughs> for many, many, many years. And, uh, and I still do it. I've slowed down a bit. But um, <laughs> I, I live um, here in Fairwood, Washington with my wife and daughter. Uh, I got married a little bit late in life, so I was in my 40s and uh, – but it wasn't too late, and um, we now have a daughter who is 14, loves backpacking, hiking. She's into photography also, loves to play piano and express herself that way. Uh, we do some family hikes and backpacks. Uh, I literally live next to the Issaquah Alps. Uh, so I write out my door. I can take a hike, and I do that pretty much on a daily basis. I retired early from the Boeing company. Uh, now I do consulting in procurement cost analysis. Uh, I also have two side businesses, one in photography and uh, the other as an independent consultant. Um, if, if anyone wants to hire me directly in procurement cost analysis, yeah. Nice. <laughs> That's cool, man. I, I, I've so many people that I've talked to in landscape photography. Um, it seems like they kind of got into it because their like day job was um, so demanding. And so I don't want to say boring, but like it, it didn't allow for that creative expression like you're describing. Mm -hmm. And um, right. I think that holds true for so many of us that are taking up uh, photography and it's, it's a nice, expressive and creative uh release um that that we can't usually otherwise get at work <laughs> exactly and i found when i communicated that to the people i work for that you know they were, were very open to creating time in my schedule and in supporting that other part of myself um something i encourage everyone to do don't you just assume that um, work and photography are not compatible. I, I, I think you first need to explore uh, avenues to balancing the two. It applies to family life also. 
Yeah, you know, that's one of the things I struggle with a lot as someone who does a lot of backpacking uh, as yourself. Um, I also have a, my son is 10 and I'm married and I have a full-time job. So, you know, it's, it's often difficult me difficult for me to, to balance all of that. I mean, obviously, I if I could, I would spend a lot more time in the backcountry taking pictures. But um, I think having striking a balance is critical because I think if you if you go one way or the other, I feel like um, it just I think it creates some weird juju. I don't even know how to describe it, but. Um, I feel like it, it definitely can cause some tension in your life. That's not healthy. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. So do you remember what your first digital camera was? Uh, my first digital camera was, um, a Minolta E1. It was kind of like a bridge camera. Uh, it did kind of everything with a range of about, 35 millimeter equivalent of 18 to 200. It had uh, an EVF um, full manual operation. The Minolta was the precursor to the Sony digital camera. I eventually evolved into the Sony R01, which was, I think, they're one of their very first um, consumer mass uh, cameras sold to the mass market. Uh, then I evolved to uh, in various Nikon cameras. I, I was pretty much Nikon for many, many years, but um, I really preferred the, the mirrorless uh, interface. Um, used the micro four thirds for a while, uh, but uh, I found that the, the size of the file was very limiting. So, um, I eventually moved to the Sony A7R3 or R2 and then R3, and that's where I'm at today. Nice. That sounds very similar to what I did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and part of that was what we'll eventually talk about is the the backpacking and the hiking. uh, Get the weight down, and not only the weight, but the form factor and the size of the camera also. Absolutely. So... Let's um, we'll get back to that for sure. But uh, one of the things that I was really hoping to talk to you about um, that we kind of alluded to in the introduction, um, you know, I like I said before, I noticed um, uh, following you for over the last few years that there's been a significant um, progression in your in your artwork. And um, and I think one of the things that I personally really appreciate about the work that you do is that. Um, you're not shooting a lot of known locations like you're in areas that are known but you're shooting compositions and scenes that most people probably have never seen before or are very unique to you so I'm curious like I know I guess the best way is put it like how did you how have you found your artistic vision like what does that process look like for you well The artistic vision has, in my opinion, a lot to do with um, finding who you are as a person. It's finding your authentic self. And, you know, that is a self with a capital S, not not a small S. I'm not talking about uh, the ego necessarily here. It is more of a... 
the expanded sense of who I am and as a person. Uh, I've been a lifelong um, studier of uh, the thoughts of um, Carl Jung, along with uh, the American transcendentalists. Um, and uh, they, they advise us to um, seek um, a lot larger sense of self. You know, this sense of self is going to include um, not only the shadow parts of ourself, but um, what Jung calls um, the collective unconscious. Um, you know, it, it is um, a, a journey toward wholeness of who we are as a person. Uh, how do we do that? Um, you know, a lot of it, I think, depends on um, how we go about during certain things in life. Uh, one of the things that helped me is um, keeping it as like a daily journal. Um, hmm. uh, once a day, write down my, my thoughts of... Um, where I'm at at a given point in time. Um, what uh, is it out there that um, I find interesting? Um, what am I struggling with? Um, and take similar thoughts into the field when, when taking photographs. Um, you don't immediately launch off and, uh, you know, get a composition that's maybe considered the one to have in a particular location, but uh, what do I feel about this location? What is it that, uh, um, that I'm attracted to? Uh, what do I see here? Um, and, and not strictly in um, a sense of what's out there, but uh, how it affects my inner geography and uh, what is the intersection of what I feel inside and what is out there. Have that um, inform my choices for what to take a picture of. Um, it's a very different place, you know, I think than um, having a preconceived notion of what the composition is. You know, it, it, it really doesn't have that much to do with pre-visualization. It has more to do with um, uh, letting nature speak to a, a person to myself and uh, what it is that I hear uh, at this particular location. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, as you say that I was thinking about um, my recent trip to Iceland where for the most part, um, the people that I went with, we had the trip that was planned in advance, you know, it was, pretty much to mostly iconic locations, but I didn't do a lot of research um, uh, about the places we were going to go because I wanted to just, when I got there, just experience those places and figure out wh how they would speak to me and how what I would do with it with a camera. And, and I don't know, I, I feel like I've been doing that more and more over the years, mm -hmm. like... Mm -hmm. 
not having a pre like you were saying, not having a preconceived notion of the photograph that I was going to capture, but going to a place, whether it's iconic or not, I don't think is important, Right. but going to a place, experiencing it and then trying to interpret it um, with your feelings and with us like trying to tell a story and, and trying to really just understand what that place and what that experience is having on you. I think that can have a huge um, impact on how it informs your process and how you just what compositions you even discover. Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with iconic places. You know, I think that in every photographer's journey, there is a time and place to go out and discover those places. Um, but it's, it's a far different process of looking at an iconic site, whatever it is, whether it's um, Yellowstone Falls or uh, one of the arches at Arches National Park, uh, looking at it from your own internal vision, then trying to replicate what someone else has done. Um, it'll take you in different places. Um, you'll see things that um, others may not have seen if you're honest and open to what it is um, at that time that uh, really affects you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what's funny about the whole discussion about icons is um, <laughs> I don't think there's a single photographer out there that doesn't want to see and photograph um, all of the iconic locations in the world. I think the turnoff for some people is that it's, you know, it's been done before and um, that there's so many people there. And it, it, it definitely, for me anyway, it modifies the experience that you have when there's a bunch of people there versus when you're kind of in the back country mm -hmm. at a location that no one perhaps has ever photographed before. Or very few people have like, it's a very different experience that definitely translates much differently photographically as well. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. But, you know, I think everyone has to kind of go through a progression in their for photographic journey. You know, part of that may be iconic places Part of it might be um, looking at published images. You know, social media can be a great, great inspiration to people. Other photographers can be a great inspiration to people. Um, looking at what they've done, what inspires them, uh, who are the photographers that they like, what is their style. Uh, that doesn't mean that we imitate them or try to replicate what they're doing, but they, that can be a, an important source of inspiration. Going off the beaten path, like you mentioned, um, there's a major sense of satisfaction in uh, discovering a composition, a place that few have been and making it one's own uh, and sharing that with other people that, it probably is not as available in an iconic place. Um, it's much harder in an iconic place because in, in one sense, so much has been done before. So to come up with something unique uh, that's expressive as, as who you are as a person is maybe more difficult. 
then if you um, go to the places that few go. You know. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, one of the things that I'm starting to discover about myself, uh, photographically speaking, is that I have this... Um, I have this extreme desire to set to to set myself apart as an artist, as a photographer, um, and my way of doing that has been to go to places that other people wouldn't necessarily photograph, or places that other people maybe never have been to. But then what I'm realizing is that that's only part of the equation. Like it's okay to go to classic locations, but then try to come up with your own and interpretation of that place mm -hmm. because yeah. i think it's i think it's both you know i think you have and there's no right or wrong i don't think no there isn't it, there's very little that's black and white um and prescriptive in photography as an art um uh but you know even in going on and off the beaten path you know if one is relying upon compositional approaches that are very much cliche um, one might not get a unique I I image even there other than the fact that it's something that people have not seen. Uh, so even there, um, what is it that means to you? What am I feeling about that, this place? Um, what uh, thoughts is, is it bringing forward? Uh, you know, uh, Emerson said that uh, nature is symbolic of spirit. Uh, so some of these places may take us to a higher place. You know, how do we convey that in an image? Uh, may not be all that easy, but we can look for visual metaphors, uh, symbols uh, that are meaningful to us and hopefully to others also incorporate those into our composition and come up with something that uh, is unique uh, at these places, just as it would be at an iconic place also. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's funny, a couple, about a month ago, I had, um, um, I had Ben Horn on the podcast and he, he was talking about um, his approach to, photography was all about storytelling and ever since then a couple of times I've gone out I've tried to like look for scenes that uh you know try to tell a story and it is way harder than it sounds yeah, <laughs> like you can't right. force it like it either is there or it's not yeah well sometimes <laughs> uh, the story can come from the place itself you know the the geography um just the history of the place but often I think that the real story has uh, has more to do with where we're at at that point in time. Uh, how do we integrate that with what we're seeing out there uh, and convey that in an image that um, that speaks both to uh, what is out there in the physical sense, but also uh, more of an, an internal sense, uh, even in a spiritual, spiritual sense of uh, what we're experiencing at that point in time. Yeah, absolutely. 
So what has your uh, photographic uh, vision journey looked like? Well, um, it's evolving all the time. Um, you know, initially, like a lot of people, I studied composition. I um, studied the craft of photography. That process has never ended. It's still going on. I think that um, it should go on for virtually all photographers. We should never stop learning. Um, there is so much to learn. Um, you know, the last three or four years, um, I've delved into the luminosity mass and um, these approaches right. to uh, uh, post-processing that uh, I was not experienced at uh, earlier, you know, look, working with the, the tutorials of Sean Bakeshaw, Ryan Dyer, Noriega, and others um, to learn these techniques. Um, but the technique is just part of it. Uh, what do we use that for now to um, help express what we want in that image? Um, you know, the, some of the predominant style is this kind of a dark image uh, with almost like an exaggerated level of contrast between highlights and shadows. Is that really the vision I want? Um, for the most part, for me, it wasn't. Um, and, and it's a perfectly valid vision for other people and other photographers, but um, I always have seen the world a little bit differently, um, more bound to um, my experience of what I actually saw at the time. Uh, now, that doesn't mean I'm trying to capture literally what's out there. I, I want to express also um, things in the image, but how I go about doing that, um, I always want it to be consistent with um, what is possible. Um, that doesn't mean that I do not enhance or uh, make things a little bigger through warping or um, control contrasts using luminosity mass and things like that. But always keep in mind why I'm going to do this. What am I trying to achieve? What's the end result? Um, I, I feel like I've progressed quite a bit in that regard last three or four years. Yeah. I feel like um, the technology is becoming more and more accessible and the information that's out there in terms of like how you do it and, you know, step-by-step, process of learning the steps to, to to do that kind of work. I think it's pretty accessible versus maybe five or six years ago. Um, but I, it's, it's funny, like there's still people out there that will spend a lot of money to, to learn those kind of techniques um, from, from folks. And uh, there's definitely a huge market for teaching people how to process mm -hmm. their images in a certain style. I think, um, that that's what drives a lot of, um, professional photographers nowadays is oh, yeah. teaching, yeah. um, which is very interesting that, uh, 
you know, that's, that's the predominant way for a lot of people to make money now. Yeah, no doubt. And, and I really value all of the, those individuals I mentioned who are out there that are, um, with these tutorials. Um, they do a great job. But um, I think we need to um, use these skills to uh, support our own vision and not replicate what others have done. Um, you know, what really do I want to um, do with this photograph? Um, is it what this other person has done or is it something different? Yeah. Right. Or you could just pay one of them to process your photo <laughs> and then you could yeah. submit it to a contest and win the yeah. contest, which, right. by the way, has happened. <laughs> is that really <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, if, if the style um, is something that you want to follow, uh, you know, in the same um, manners, kind of depart from it and make it your own in some manner. That's fine, also. Oh, for sure. Like, uh, don't get me wrong. Like, I wish I could produce images um, that I've seen from a lot of the people we've spoken about. Um, you know, I just, I know I personally don't have the, the chops for it. And uh, I also don't think I have the patience to learn uh, from other people. Like I, I, to me, part of the fun of uh, at least digital processing is like just teaching myself and learning mm -hmm. things and trying to figure stuff out on my own. Like, I know that sounds weird, but I, I kind of enjoy learning new skills on my own. Like I taught myself how to build a website on my own. I have a few websites. I've taught myself podcasting. Like to me, part of the fun is just like learning on your own and trying to figure it out. And it's like, Oh, look what I did. Like, that was cool. <laughs> you know, like I think there's something cool about that. Like learning on your own and trying to figure stuff out. Like, and I think a lot of those people, that's probably how they started too. Like, um, yeah, that's what's so I think funny. that's like, part I've... of the artistic process is trial and error. Oh, what for works, sure. What doesn't change your mind, um, having a vision to start out with, but that vision changes as, as you go along, gets recalibrated. Uh, a new end comes in sight as you go through the process. Um, you know, a lot of times people talk about a style. Um, as if style is something that you consciously strive for. I think the reality of the situation is it's something that evolves through this process of continuous learning, trial and error. Um, if you do that in a matter that is not imitative, but um, it which reflects uh, what you're learning in your own self-progression, a style will eventually evolve. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I've actually been thinking a lot about that idea of your personal style because, um, relatively early on in my photography uh, journey myself, I remember that, um, I had a very distinctive style that, um, I would constantly use in my photos and put out there into the world. And I became very well known for that style. And then, after a few years, like 
uh, I just became very unhappy with the way those photos looked. And I, st- I evolved out of that style. But I think a lot of my early fans, like, didn't evolve with me. Like, they wanted me right. to keep producing that old style of photo that I had mm-hmm. kind of worked myself out of. So I'm curious, like, do you do you struggle with, like, that, that pull between, like, what people out there that have come – come to become your fans expect from you and what you want to progress into? Uh, I don't think I've experienced that as much as you have. Um, maybe it's cause it's just like a slow evolution and the, my fan base kind of evolves with me. Some go, some come in. Sure. Sure. Uh, what I do know is that when I go back and look at my images, that they're clearly different four years ago, three years yeah. ago, two years ago, one year ago. And for a while, I thought, well, I need to reprocess everything. And I do that sometimes. Sure. But now I think I've come to the conclusion that, hey, these are um, landmarks along the way of my ph- photographic journey. Um, what I was doing at the time was meaningful to me then. Mm-hmm. Um, I had the emotions that I experienced. Um, I did the best I could to uh, convey those through imagery at the time, given the skills and the level of where I was at at the time. Um, hey, um, those are the images of uh, that. Uh, are landmarks uh, along my path, and uh, I'm going to keep them out there. Occasionally, I repost them. Um, I do not feel the need to uh, disavow them or say that they're not worthy. Um, I'll think the same thing four years from now, that what I'm doing currently isn't quite right. Um, (laughs) It'll never end. Yeah. Yeah, I feel I mean, like. Can you imagine like a <laughs> famous artist um, taking a work, piece of work that they did early in their career and trashing it? Um, I don't <laughs> think so. It just wouldn't happen that way. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's, that, that's a, just an analogy. <laughs> that's a good point. I feel like I feel like um, if you're not progressing in some way, you're not growing as an artist, and I think that's a critical aspect of why we do what we do, at least some of us, maybe not everyone, but I know um, I I purposely haven't deleted any of my old photos on Flickr from when I first started because it's like a, I don't know, it's a good reminder of where I came from and and what, how far I've, excuse me, how far I've come as an artist. I mean, I think it's, it's always fun to look back. It's like, oh my God, what was I doing? Right. <laughs> Yeah, I think many of us came through the HDR uh, movement and you have some examples of extreme post-processing, cartoonish colors, things like that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And if you haven't, uh, if you didn't live through that era, you are so lucky. (laughs) Because I feel like that led so many people astray, like... 
Because it was so gaudy. The psychedelic era was not over in the 60s. It came back about five years ago. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, like 2011, 2012, like it was strong. Right, yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Let's um, let's change topics a little bit and talk about um, something I think we have in common, especially as people that do a lot of backpacking and um, uh, photography out in the wild areas and wild places in nature. And uh, that's something that I'm actually doing a lot of writing and thinking and activism around. And that's uh, this idea of, you know, leave no trace and, and leaving it better mm-hmm. than the way you found it. Like, how has that how have those principles um, guided you throughout your photographic journey and uh, what, how does it inform uh, your approach to nature photography? Well, I'm a firm believer in leaving the book trace, um, but there, it is a little problematic. Uh, how, um, how do we go into a landscape uh, that's delicate uh, cannot withstand much for traffic uh, as a photographer. Uh, it's not that easy. Uh, you know, a lot of times I think that people think that, uh, well, it's just me. Uh, there won't be much damage. But a lot of these areas, um, it is hard to go through them without doing some damage and having an impact. Um the only way to avoid that in some of these places is not go. And uh, I don't think that sits well with a lot of people. They, they want to go. Uh, then the other part of that is, um, well, who gets to go? Um, you know, it's okay um, for me to go, but what about others? Um, <laughs> hey, there's about 8 billion people on this earth. Uh, about set 370 million here in the United States. Um, we all have a need for nature. Um, in a lot of ways, um, we um, are missing that part of our life. Many of us live in cities. Um, how do we reclaim uh, our contact in nature? For thousands of years, uh, we all had contact in nature. Um, you know, we were agrarian societies living close to nature, not so anymore. So how are we going to allocate who gets to go and who doesn't get to go? Uh, one of the things I think we can do as a photographer is um, not just celebrate uh, the iconic places or the places in sensitive environments, but to use our photographic skills to bring awareness to areas that maybe are less known, but uh, not as delicate uh, in an environmental sense, such as lowland forests, um, subalpine areas that are more resilient than uh, the upper alpine that's more sensitive. Um, you know, it's something to think about. Um, you know, a lot of times um, I hear that the photographers, um, they take great pride in uh, bringing to people awareness of nature, uh, hoping to instill a desire on their part to 
go out to these places. And um, if we don't share like locations or particulars about where to go, um, where does that leave them? Um, they have a desire to go, but don't really know where to go. Um, it's kind of a conundrum. Um, I don't think there are any real easy answers. Um, uh, how much do I share on social media about a location? Um, some places that uh, that are, are not, not known and are very sensitive. My policy is not to share it at all. Um, but that even can be pr problematic. Um, you know, it's one thing not to share a location, but I think most of us photographers, we want to share the image. <laughs> we want to at least do that. Um, but, you know, if someone can take that image and put it into Google Images as a search and find out the location that way. Um, the technology is not quite evolved yet to do that with... Um, any amount of precision, uh, but it is there and it's getting better. Uh, just like face recognition, you know, um, I just did it the other day, put in a picture in Google search, um, out came the answer. Oh, that's where it is. Yes. <laughs> I saw an article on outside magazine a couple of weeks ago that was basically about this topic about, you know, sharing locations of where you go and, um, I was pretty disappointed to read some of the comments, you know, never read the comments, but I can't help myself. But, you know, a lot of the comments were about like people that <laughs> um, people that don't share locations are just um, they're being elitists or like um, they're being snobs like, oh, they're privileged to go to those places, but no one else mm -hmm. is. And I feel like, I mean, I could see that perspective um, if if you don't understand the underlying issue that people are trying to bring awareness to, which is the fact that even one other person going to certain mm -hmm. locations can have a significant long-term irreparable impact to a place's, um, the way it looks, the way that the uh, habitat looks, the, the way that... Like you can have significant damage to a place just by one or two people that I, I feel like people just don't understand that. Yeah. If, if it's that sensitive, I, I agree with you, but not all areas kind of fit into that category. You know, and uh, that I think we need to be honest about. Is it, is it my reason for not disclosing truly environmental or does it have more to do with just wanting to limit or exclude others? You know, if it's if it's just limiting or excluding others, it is a little elitist. But uh, if the motivation is to protect the area, I don't think so. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think I don't think it's a black and white issue, right? Like, um, you know, there's definitely locations out there that. I would not hesitate to tell other people, like, oh, yeah, it's right here. It's no big deal. Um, like, I know that that place can can handle a group of people going there. 
Um, you know, it's been, there's been lots of people that have been there before. It's not a big deal. And there's other places that I know that if uh, a horde of people on a workshop or not on a workshop, just like a tour bus full of people go there, like it's going to have an impact. So I feel like the question isn't whether or not you should share. The question is, what is the impact if I do share? And I think, I feel like that's, if, if we all just asked ourselves that question before we shared, it would solve a lot of these problems and it would not really have that much of a an elitist feel. Like it's not. But there could be some situations where um, not only do we do not share the location, but we don't share the image also. I think that would be a hard pill to swallow for some. But if you really want to really protect an area, I think you got to take it to that level. You know, it, um, the experience is just something that remains with you. You know, I had a, an experience about two years ago where I went to a location here in Colorado um, that I'd never been to before, but um, I had known about it for a very long time because it's very photographically amazing. And um, it's just, it's an amazing place. And um, I went there and, you know, we were, we went there on a Friday night and there was no other people there. And on Saturday, like this, these horrid people showed up. And one of the people that we went with, um, some of their friends just happened to show up as well at that location. And uh, we were talking to them about like, cause they live like, I don't know, they live like an hour away. So they go there a lot. And so they've seen like over the years, how popular the location has gotten and how much impact that popularity has had on that location. And, uh, and, you know, we had that conversation. It was good. And I was annoyed by all the people there and whatever we had. A conversation. And then I, I wrote a blog post about my experience and like shared my photos and, and he emailed me and he was like, I'm so disappointed that you wrote that blog post telling other people about how amazing this place is. He's like, you're just part of the problem. And at the time I was like, man, you're just a jerk. You're like, like, come on, man. Like my one blog post is not going to have an impact, but ultimately I came to the conclusion, like he's actually right. Like I'm not helping the situation. I'm just <laughs> exacerbating the problem. Like my article probably inspired 10 or 15 or 20 people to go there and like it's it just snowballs and i think that's what we don't realize is like maybe the 20 people that i inspired to go there don't have damage to that yeah. place but then like maybe they tell a friend and then they yeah, I, so i think it's people I, don't think like exponentially about like what the impact could be. I, I write blog posts um about areas also i've written one about the enchantments another about glacier peak your wilderness area um i don't think that i really feel like i've compromised anything with those two places because for the enchantments for example you need a permit to right. go in there anyway so um it's uh, restricted in that manner um if it wasn't for the permit process uh there would be a lot of environmental damage. Glacier Peak, it's, it's such an extraordinary amount of effort to get into these places that, um, you know, even when people find out about it, the, the difficulty getting there in and itself uh, limits the amount of traffic. 
Um, so I don't feel about, bad about that either. But there's other areas that I would not write blog posts about. I know about some waterfalls that are here local that nobody goes to. If they ever got it discovered, there would be literally thousands of people going there. All the flora fauna, the moss along the rocks uh, would, wouldn't probably last a month or two. It would all be gone, kind of like what we're seeing um, prior to the fire at Mossy Grotto. Oh, significant. I mean, and I, again, I don't think the people that made that place popular really envisioned that kind of impact and probably, probably have some regret about it. But, you know, like you can't predict what kind of impact you're going to have on a place. And so I, it's such a, it's such a, tr- a tricky topic. Like, because I want to tell people like, oh, you can't tell anyone where to go anywhere. Like, that's not, what this is about. It's about just, I feel like if, if all it, all we did was take 15 seconds to think about what the impact would be, the world would already be a much better place. Just thinking about it, it's going to have such an impact on the long-term effects. I think ultimately the, the best way to uh, help protect the environment that's more realistic than, um, trying to keep a lid on the locations, uh, which um, however sincere people are and how much they try, ultimately, I don't think that will be successful. People will find a way into these places. The the best way, in my opinion, is um, number one is to establish a permit processes, you know, areas that are very sensitive uh, much like a, you have in enchantments, if you want to walk the Wonderland Trail, uh, there's a place to sign up. There's a lottery uh, visitation that's allocated based upon some kind of a lottery drawing. Um, and I hate to see it get to that point, but uh, it kind of gets into this elitist, elitist argument. Um, how do you determine who goes? Um, you know, we all can't right. go. Um, there has to be some come out of process that respects each individual's right to go. This land is owned in common. There is it's a national park land, a lot of it. Um, what gives one particular person a greater right to go than someone else? Um, I think if we're going to be fair about it, the only way to do it is through a permits system. Or like at Mount Rainier, they, um, you know, they have had a policy for years and years. I used to work up there when I was like in high school, and they introduced their policy to me then that they established sacrifice areas where the hordes come in. They know that there's going to be damage, but they got to give them some place to go. Uh, that's part of the national parks um one of their goals that they're supposed to maintain is to to give places for the public to go, but at the same time to protect the environment. So there's other areas that um, they restrict through a permit process. And on Mount Rainier, at least, there's some places that you can't go, period, you know, that um, no one goes there. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Unfortunately, I feel like that's the only way you're going to put a lid on some of this stuff is to, you know, create a permit system. 
um it's just unfortunate because um you know it's it's our land like we should i mean technically we should have the right to go there but yeah i get it <laughs> it's, it's unfortunate but it's i feel like that probably is the only way to, <laughs> to keep a lid on it for sure <laughs> but you know the, there are these places that um only Matt Payne knows about, only Erwin Buskey knows about. Um, I think we're all entitled to a few places like that where um, just don't let anyone know. You know, it's it's your secret. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. Well, um, let's talk a little bit um, about uh, some advice you might have. So what advice would you have for other photographers that are listening to the podcast? Well, two things come to mind. One is um, continuous learn the art and craft of photography. Never get to the point where you think that uh, one knows it all. Uh, Continuously engage in learning. Look at the tutorials, uh, new ones that come out, uh, go through them, uh, new editing techniques. ways of composing images that you see other other photographers do. Um, Learn about um, artistic principles, not just from photographers, but the world and art in general. Um, Continuously engage in those practices. Uh, It'll help you be relevant and uh, stay at the top of this game. and continue to progress. Um, that would be one. Um, the, the other one would be um, to uh, view landscape and nature photography as a path of uh, self-discovery, which it is. Um, these images that we take, uh, the landscapes mm. that we experience, these are windows into our own soul, uh, there are windows into a place uh, that's higher than our self with a small s into more of our larger self, uh, something that includes uh, both our conscious and unconscious parts of, uh, of who we are. Um, you know, uh, it includes uh, a, a vision looking out to uh, something that transcends who we are as uh, an individual person and uh, conveys our artistic vision. Nice. I love that. Cool. So who who would you love to hear on the podcast? Well, I have a few photographers that I'd love to see on your podcast that haven't been mentioned before. Uh, one is um, Valerie Millet. Oh, uh huh. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, her work has always ex- ex- inspired me. Um, she comes from a, a, an artistic background, as in painting and uh, those kind of pursuits, and a lot of that is reflected in, in her photographic art. Um, some of her work seems more subtle and perhaps uh, understated than what's currently the dominant uh, aesthetic out there. But um, I, th- I think that that, that also um, makes her work somewhat more unique 
been uh, maybe the dominant thread of what we see out there. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. Uh, another fantastic person that I just recently met is uh, Michael Gordon, great black and white photographer. He's um, really good friends with Guy Tall. The two of them uh, lead workshops. Yeah, workshops together. So you, you get some of that uh, same flavor from him as Guy, but they're clearly they're two, two different people. So he would be another one I really recommend. In uh, the Seattle area, uh, there's a couple. Um, Sigma Shri Hardam. Uh, her work is very bold, uh, uh primarily of the Seattle skyline, West Seattle, downtown Seattle, uh, dramatic sunsets. Uh, she expresses uh, some of the energy of the city, uh, very popular here in Seattle, probably the one of the two top uh, city ph- photographers along with um, a couple of her others. Um, another person would be... Um, uh, Trevor Anderson. Uh, oh yeah, I know Trevor. <laughs> yeah, similar to myself, he a lot of his phot- photography is out backpacking, hiking. Uh, he also has uh, a background as a poet, so um, he has a very evocative style that uh, seems to suggest worlds beyond the visual elements that may be. Uh, you know, present into the photograph, um, evoking moods uh, that uh, others can appreciate also. I think he would be a good person to have on. Yeah, I actually um, shared a campsite with Trevor back in October when we were, he was here in Ridgeway in Colorado with um, uh, with uh, Brian Swan. So the three of us oh, shared, yeah. a, shared a campsite together. <laughs> <laughs> and had some nice conversations. So yeah, Trevor's a great guy. I like Trevor a lot. Uh, yeah, that's he cool. Would be a good person to have on. Yeah, awesome. Well, man, thanks so much for uh, sharing your wisdom. I wish I had thirty years of photography under my belt to to guide <laughs> guide my vision like you do. So it's really cool to to hear you talk about um, kind of where you've landed and kind of. It's it's also really cool to hear like after thirty years you're still learning and still Oh yeah. Still, <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. So I think that's really inspiring. I, feel like I have only learned ten percent of what, what it is to learn though. <laughs> yeah, man. Well that's like three times as much as me, so <laughs> awesome. Well thanks again, man. I appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. You're welcome. Glad to be on the podcast. Cool. Well, thanks to Erwin for coming on to the show with us. Uh, to find out more about Erwin uh, and see more of his amazing photography, visit him on the web at erwinbuskey.com. You'll find links to topics we discussed and more in the show notes on my blog at mattpainphotography.com. And as usual, thank you for everyone who has been supporting the podcast by writing a review on iTunes. As people search for podcasts to listen to, uh, it helps people discover the podcast. Uh, thanks to Iron Taz Skaggs and SD25 for their awesome five-star reviews. Uh, you can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. For as little as $1, you can help pay for the production costs of the podcast. It 
does take a lot of my time. <laughs> and uh, for $5 a month and higher, you gain access to uh, bonus episodes and more. This week on Patreon, Erwin and I discuss all things backpacking. So come take a listen and learn a little bit from us if you're interested in that. Thanks to our newest patron, Bruce Couch. If you want to drop me a line about the podcast um, with either suggestions or ideas, please reach out to me via my website at mattpainphotography.com or on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Matt Payne Photo or Matt Payne Photography. Thanks for listening.